to this episode of Founded in Tech. I am your host, Mark Eckerly, and today's show is part of our Tech Tip series where I sat down with Dan Krolikowski to talk about secondary sales. On today's episode, we discuss the difference between a primary sale and a secondary sale, the planning process when going through a secondary sale, and then tax considerations to be aware of. I really got a lot out of this conversation and I hope you do as well. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. Dan Krolikowski is joining me today to talk about secondary sales. Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Can't complain. Excited to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah. thanks for joining us today. So so before we jump into what a secondary sale is, um, why don't you tell us a little bit of background of yourself, kind of your, your role here at Witham and, and what you do? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a senior manager here at Witham, Mark, and I'm a team leader of Witham's Founders and Tech Executive Group. And, you know, we deal a lot with the, you know, executive compensation, equity compensation, helping our clients with liquidity events. Um, so, you know, we're doing a lot of work around secondary sale and working with our clients, you know, with them all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly hot topic right now. Yeah. And, and you know, as you'll, you'll notice when we talk about the environment a little bit, you know, there's definitely a lot going on in the secondary market in general. So you know, I can understand why a lot of people want to hear about it and, and listen to me and you talk about it. Definitely. Definitely. So, so let's jump right into it. What um, starting all the way back at the beginning, what what is a secondary sale and, and how is it different when you think of your standard primary sale where you're issuing series A, series B um, preferred shares? So kind of tell us the difference in, in what is a secondary sale. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in order to talk about a secondary, I think, like you said, maybe we'll first talk about primary sale and typically in a primary sale company will issue new shares to investors and then the proceeds of that sale go directly to the company. And a secondary sale is a little bit of the opposite where the company actually effectuates around the financing. And then in conjunction with that financing, employee shareholders of the company actually sell their stock to either existing and new investors. Um, so the cash is actually not going to the company, it's gonna go um, to the employee shareholders. Gotcha, so, so existing shareholders would be selling to new investors essentially. Exactly. Okay. And okay. You know, and then, again, the main difference is that it's not new shares that are being issued, um, it's old shares. So you're not diluting the cap table. And then again, the cash isn't going to the company, it's actually going to the shareholders, you know, which is a, a big benefit to them. So, so what makes this such a hot ticket item right now? Why is this so popular? I mean, I've been hearing it pop up left and right. Um, I don't work directly with secondary sales, so I'm not necessarily in the know, but kind of tell us why is this so popular right now? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the main reason is it's just the environment that we're in. Um, there's a lot of private companies out there and the companies are staying private longer. So their mm-hmm. value is increasing while they're private and they're not IPOing. Um, and the other reason is just because of all these private companies, there's a lot of, I guess, money that's being invested and, and being put aside to invest in these private companies at an earlier stage. Um, so because of, of, of all the, the hot environment um, and because there's so much money in, this, in the private uh, industry right now, these companies are actually looking for ways that you know, they can reward their shareholders, reward their early employees sooner than later. Um, for all their hard work and the value creation that they've done, you know, for these companies throughout the years. Um, so, so you, you know, right now, I, I, you know, there's a ton of secondaries going on. Gotcha. So, so you mentioned that companies are rewarding employees via this. How does that kind of come into play? What, what role does a company have if, if I think about it from a high level, 
um, I'm an I'm a employee shareholder, I want to sell to a new, new investor, what role does the company have in that? Do they have to give me authorization to sell my stock or what does that look like? Yeah, definitely. So it just could depend on the situation. And a lot of times, you know, when you have a secondary um, opportunity that happens, um, it could be limited to a certain amount of shareholders that are allowed to sell um, or it could be opened up to, you know, the entire employee base. Typically, there's there's restrictions on who's able to participate in one of these secondaries. Okay. And what are the what are what are common restrictions that you see there? Yeah, so you know some of the common restrictions that you would see are you know just transfer restrictions in general. Sometimes you need board approval on company repurchases if the company is actually buying the stock from you um, and not an outside investor. Um, sometimes there's what we call right of first refusal, which means you know a lot of times these shareholders are going out and trying to find buyers for their stock. Sometimes the company's not doing it on their behalf, and then the company then has the right once the shareholder finds a buyer to say, hey, you know what, we're actually going to buy the stock from you. So you could go through all this effort and not be able to sell, you know, to an outside buyer, may have to sell back to the company. So there can be restrictions there. And then a lot of times, um, you know, with all with tender offers or things that are open up to a wider range of employees, there's a lot of times a limit on what you can actually sell. So you may only be allowed to sell 10% of your holdings or 20% of your withholdings of, of your total holdings. Um, so a lot of times you can't just say, hey, I'm going to sell everything I, I have right now. So while they want to reward their employees, they also want them to have that long term goal still in sight. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. And yeah, I wasn't I wasn't aware of certain restrictions there and, and kind of the company's role. So it definitely helps clarify it a little bit. Yeah. So, and, and you just see, depending on the company, sometimes they'll actually help you look out for the sh for, for certain buyers. And then sometimes, you know, the shareholders on their own to try and figure out that market themselves. Yeah, it's nice nice to see that they're got your got, have your best interest in in heart as well, right? Not not everyone's always watching your back a little bit, so. Exactly. And so, lot, so, go ahead. No, go ahead. And, and I was gonna say too, a lot of times, Mark, um, you know, the the actual secondary can be structured differently. I mean, typically, a new investor, you know, will put money directly in the company in exchange for preferred stock, um, mm -hmm. and then the company will use some of that the dollars that they brought in to kind of redeem existing shareholders. Um, other scenarios actually involve cross sales where a new investor um, would actually purchase a sale directly from existing shareholders. So, you know, that's just, just two ways that you, you typically see secondaries. Um, mm -hmm. So depending on the structure, um, you know, there can be different restrictions involved there are different opportunities involved. So it just depends. Okay. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of kind of different factors that go into play here. Um, and each each case is a little bit different or a little bit more nuanced. Exactly. So so you're the team leader of Withams Founders Group. You you have worked with the extensive list of founders, tech ex tech executives um, as kind of a part of that role. And what have you seen, or what what tips would you give for someone to be proactive in planning for a future secondary sale? Uh, is there anything that someone can help prepare themselves with besides being the standard? organized and, and having good records. Is there anything else that someone can kind of keep in their back pocket to be proactive in the planning process? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny you say that because actually I think the main thing that they sh that everybody should be doing is starting now and getting organized now, kind of understanding what their holdings are. So a lot of times what I see is um, individuals will come to me when there's actually an um, imminent deal in place. So there's not a lot of planning that you could do. So I think, you know, what you kind of got to figure out now is what are my holdings and then, you know, kind of plot out 
what the future is going to hold for you. So think about, are there actually going to be liquidity events in the future? And then if there are, you know, what do they look like at different fair market values? Um, whether the price is going to go up and down. Um, right now, the tax code kind of favors individuals that take risk and start the holding period now of the stock. Um, and then if they sell it and the holding period's over a year, there's typically a tax benefit. Um, so you can't really decide if you're gonna take that risk or not or really make organized decisions if you yourself don't know what you have. Um, and there's other you know, breaks along tax code you know, that can go along with that. But again, a lot of it is just figuring out what do I have and then trying to figure out different planning opportunities from there. Okay. And you said, you said start the holding period. What, what does that mean? Is there a file that has to be, or a form that has to be filed to, to kind of kickstart that, that time period or when does that, is that just upon issuance? Great question. Um, so typically if you have either stock options or you get some kind of stock, even if it's restricted stock, the first thing that happens is you're granted these options, or you're granted these shares, right? Um, so typically uh, if you just, if you, were to be granted um, stock options, nothing really happens until you exercise those stock options. So when you exercise your stock options, that starts your holding period. If you were then just to actually buy into a company um, and get common stock in return for cash or services, you could theoretically start your holding period at the time that you receive that stock, unless um, that stock was subject to certain restrictions or a vesting schedule. Then at that point in time, um, you actually don't, you're not considered holding that stock until the restrictions lapse or the vesting starts. Um, there is something called an 83B election, where sometimes in those instances, you can actually speed up um, the vesting period, I'll call it, um, or the restriction period, and actually you make that 83B and you're treated as owning uh, or holding you know, that stock um, on the grant date instead of, of the vesting date or the restriction lap date. So you know, there is some planning involved with there, and depending on what your holding is, your holding period can start at different times. So again, it's just something to, to really get organized and start thinking about now. And, and what is, if someone were to elect that 83B election, what goes into that very, very quickly? Like, is that a, a, another tax form? Is that something they submit to kind of break that down for, for our audience? Yeah, definitely. So you typically make an 83B election, um, you know, whenever you have either stock options or restricted stock, that is subject to either vesting or restrictions like we were talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And what you'll do is within 30 days of grant, you actually have to file this 83B election with the company that you work for and then also with uh, the IRS. And, you know, that's really all you got to do. You just got to make sure that it's timely filed and, and you're good. Um, sometimes there's an exercise, a strike price, which we call it, that you'll have to pay to actually early exercise um, those shares. Um, so you may actually have to come out of pocket a little bit for that cash. And then separately, whatever the fair market value is on that on the date of grant, um, less whatever your strike price is, whatever cash you actually have to pay for those shares is going to be income to you. So, you know, there can be different effects for you actually making that 83B election. Um, but administratively, that's how you do it. OK, no, that makes sense. And yeah, I wasn't I wasn't too sure how that came into play here. So that that makes some sense now. Um, so we, we talked about being organized and making sure you have good record keeping, um, kind of very understanding your holdings, right? That's, that's one of the proactive methods. What, what would be the next step in this approach or in this, this planning phase to understand your secondary sale or kind of getting out ahead of it to see what your future holds, when's the right time to strike? What, what's, what would be the next step in this? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think it's just really like realizing that taxes are only one part of, you know, whatever the plan is for these holdings, right? Um, obviously, tax savings may be a big part of it. The, you know, when we, we start talking about rates, um, you know, the difference between long-term capital gains rates and what the current highest marginal tax bracket is right now can be basically 15 to 20% taxes. So, you know, while that is, you know, can be a significant factor in what your decision-making is, it shouldn't be the only factor, right? Um, so you should actually think about your overall financial plan set goals. And then, like I said, kind of figure out, you know, using projections, um, whatnot, different fair market values and what you're comfortable with, whether it's it's cashing out or whether it's actually, you know, exercising stock options and in, in, including that in part of your total holdings. Um, so I think it's just really like having an overall financial plan, you know, when you're considering um, whatever equity that, or, you know, equity or, or holdings that you have um, that you're thinking about selling at a secondary. Okay, so that that would all be, I guess, lumped in with with understanding your holdings and just kind of planning out your future, having a financial plan, figuring out which method is best for you, cashing out or or the conversely, you should you should getting stock, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I think you know the best thing to do in 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 these situations is to actually run a stock option projection. You know, one, do it as soon as possible, um, so you can be prepared for these liquidation events and these secondary sales. But then also, you know, kind of understanding you know, the mechanics of taxes in general, um, any compensation that you receive in the secondary sale is going to be subject to um, income tax withholding and FICA taxes. And typically compensations taxed at the highest, you know, marginal brackets, the ordinary rates, which can be as high as 37%. Mm-hmm. Um, many times the income tax is withheld at what we call the supplemental rate, which can be lower than what your effective tax rate is. So a lot of times in these secondary events, individuals think, hey, I paid all my taxes up front but really they may end up paying some taxes on the back end when they file their tax return. So just really, you know, understanding that. And then also if it's not compensation, it's probably going to be kind of some kind of short-term or long-term capital gain income, um, you know, on the secondary sale. So realizing that there is no withholding on that kind of income and then short-term and long-term capital gain are taxed at different rates. So just really figuring out at the end of the day, you know, what do I have and what's going to happen to me in the secondary sale? All right. So, so we touched on the taxes a little bit, um, and it seems like it's more of a, a timing game. You, you talked about effective tax rates, long-term, short-term capital gains. Can you quickly go into the difference between those? Um, I know it's all part of the financial planning process, but what what would be some advantages from a tax perspective that someone could take advantage of? Um, is there any tips or tricks that you come across during the during your experiences and working during this um, with various clients? What what would be some like I said, tips that you would recommend or things that people may not have thought of uh, that you would that you would recommend? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first thing that we always talk about is, you know, what kind of income is it going to be that, you know, we touched on? Is it compensation? Is it capital gain income? And really figuring out um, what would happen in a specific transaction for you. So a lot of times there's, you know, when a secondary sale happens, Whenever your your the company is issuing compensation like stock options, um, they're doing a 409A valuation every year, and, and what that 409A basically tells you is this is the fair market what well, we think the fair market value of our stock is. Now, when you have a secondary sale, um, a lot of times the fair market value may change. Somebody's coming in 
value in the company what they think it's worth and then going to buy stock. So that fair market value can actually, you know, possibly change the 409A valuation. But then it also gets into the kind of consideration, um, you know, what kind of income is this, right? So a lot of times, whatever um, the difference is between the actual fair market value that somebody's willing to pay in the 409A valuation, there's a discussion, is that compensation? Is that capital gain income? So there's, you know, you'll see a lot online and that's really one of the biggest, uh, you know, just issues in general that everybody's trying to figure out. So I think there can be a lot of work that's put in on both the company side and the shareholder side to kind of figure out, you know, is this going to be compensation? Is this going to be capital gain? Um, you know, so everybody can can kind of figure out for their own tax purposes what's best for them. And as a company, you know, you kind of want it to be um, compensation. So you get it. You could possibly get a deduction for it as a shareholder. Um, you know, you kind of want it to be capital gain. It can be taxed at preferential rates. If it's qualified small business stock three, it can actually be zero. Um, and there's a lot more planning that you could do for capital gains than than compensation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that definitely helps paint the picture for for our listeners from both a, a company's perspective as well as the the shareholder and which ones may be a little bit more preferential. Um, but you, the one thing that I think would be important for for people to understand is. You, you talked about an investor coming in with possibly their own valuation separate from the valuation stated in a 409A. Um, so what would that look like? Can they come up with an arbitrary number that they determine maybe creating their own 409A valuation of the company? Does the board have to approve that, that figure um, or is it something that maybe an employee shareholder is just comfortable with sh selling at that price? What, what would that look like as far as that valuation? Because I think that's dependent on a lot of people's whether they're going to sell or not, right? You're absolutely right. And that's, you know, everybody has their own price, right? And whether I'm the one selling it or I'm the one buying it, you know, you're not going to actually have an agreement until everybody reaches that agreement. So depending on how the deal is actually structured, you know, kind of depends. Um, like, again, if the company, if if the secondary is going through the company, a lot of times the company is going to be working on the shareholder's behalf to kind of help them get the best deal. Um, but if you're just the founder shareholder and, and you're kind of going out there, you know, trying to find your own deal, it, you know, it could be a lot harder in that instance. Um, and it really just depends. Um, sometimes, you know, there isn't a deal at the end of the day. Sometimes there is. Um, so just, it really depends, Mark. And, and for that valuation, if a company is working with you, um, is that, is that standard practice, I guess, with, with our companies kind of working in the process? Yeah, definitely. So the company's going to do a 409A every single year and they're going to need to do that in order to figure out, you know, what their compensation, if, if it's valued correctly, especially, you know, if they're giving stock options to employees and things like that. So that's something they're doing anyway. What mm -hmm. an actual buyer is going to come out and, and say the stock is worth could be totally different. So if the, say we're six, six to eight months removed from their most recent 409A valuation, would a company ever perform an interim 409A um, at the benefit, because say the the buyer goes with their own valuation, and they and the company wants to fall back on a a, a good number from a valuation firm that's defined in a 409A valuation, would they ever go out and perform an interim calculation, or would they fall back on the existing one? Yeah, to my understanding, you know, they would only really do the 409A for internal purposes, not external purposes. Okay. So I don't believe that they would redo 409As. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I was just curious because I know the valuation figure and like you said, everyone has their own number, right, to buy and sell. So it's it would definitely be important to just see it from both perspectives um, and what that figure and ultimate end result would look like. Totally get it. So so what other considerations, I guess, as we're, we're 
coming to a conclusion here, what other considerations may be important or critical for, for founders, shareholders to be aware of? Um, anything that we haven't really touched on that you think would be important to share with, with our audience? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, one thing is if you have stock options that are unexercised and you do exercise them, you actually typically have to pay the exercise price, whether you pay it in cash yourself or you sell shares, you know, to cover the taxes and to cover that exercise price. So, you know, a lot of times that's one decision that you really have to look for. Am I going to come out of pocket for this cash? Am I going to get a loan and pay for it? Or am I going to sell, you know, shares um, to be able uh, to do that? And then, you know, something else that, you know, listeners may not be thinking of is just like general risks of investing, such as, you know, diversifying um, to limit concentration risk. So if I'm working for a company and I own shares in the company and I have stock options in the company, you know, do I want to put all of my eggs in one basket? You know, some people do, some people don't. So, you know, that's just another consideration that everyone should be making. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess finally, you know, what's just going to happen to the stock price? I think we talked a lot about this and, and doing projections and, and really trying to understand what the future holds. But, you know, what if I exercise stock options now um, and I sell some in a secondary and then I'm going to hold for the future? What happens if the stock price goes down? What happens if it goes up? So, you know, really just, again, thinking about what the future holds and what the fair market value of the company um, is going to hold. Yeah, it all comes back to financial planning, right? It's That's the, the, the biggest driver in this. Exactly. And like, you know, even if I decide to cash out now, what am I going to do with these net funds? Am I going to go buy a house? Am I going to reinvest in something else? Am I going to throw a big party? Or am I actually not going to sell? Am I going to continue to hold? And I'm real bullish on the future. So these are just all, you know, considerations. And, and I think, you know, tax planning can help you come to a conclusion that you should do. But at the end of the day, you know, you should do what you want to do because it makes you happy. It makes you meet goals. It makes you live a certain lifestyle. So it shouldn't all just be about, you know, the tax planning. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So so to wrap up here, I, I asked this question to all of our guests, um, and it's kind of a, a good tidbit for our listeners and what you've come across during your your experiences in working in this industry. So what what is one common misstep or a tidbit of information that you've seen um, during your experience that you think a founder or employee shareholder wish they had known at the beginning? Um, whether we, we talked about planning, we talked a lot about a lot of things that uh, founders and employee shareholders should be aware of, but is there anything that you've come across quite commonly um, that people wish they had known sooner? Yeah, and I, we keep like harping on like getting an early start, but I think what happens is a lot of companies could qualify as a qualified small business stock, and if you actually were to exercise um, options and hold, and, and whenever the company is a qualified small business stock, you can actually also have qualified small business stock. So you don't necessarily have to be a founder to get what we call founder shares. So I think that, you know, in general, early on, um, everyone should be thinking about whether the company is a qualified small business or not. And then subsequently, um, everybody should think about what we, with stock options in 83B election. It may not make sense to make it, but a lot of times, especially at, at the truest startups, um, the fair market value of the stock now could be equal to the strike price. Um, so you really could have no income to recognize um, when you actually go to exercise these stock options with an 83B. Obviously, you still have to come up with the exercise price out of pocket, um, mm -hmm. but that can really, really save in the long run um, if, if you were to consider those two things. Yeah, so paying, paying those upfront costs may help you in the long term. 
Um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. So, so that wraps up our discussion on secondary sales. Thank you, Dan, for, for joining me today. If you'd like to learn more, please visit withem.com for more information and check out our specific founders team page landing page uh, for more information. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked it and want to hear more, you can follow us and subscribe, and we'll see you next time on Founded in Tech.